millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to ModPath Chat, the official podcast of Modern Pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Wherever you are in any of the 110 countries that our podcast reaches, I welcome you back to ModPath Chat. It's my pleasure today to host one of the rising star in gynecologic pathology, Dr. Brooke Howitt. Brooke is Associate Professor of Pathology at Stanford. She has already published over 100 manuscripts that have extensively influenced our field, so truly a rising star. Dr. Howitt is with us today to discuss a must-read manuscript that her group published recently in Modern Pathology, uh, reviewing their institutional experience in implementation of the molecular classification of endometrial cancer. Welcome to ModPass Chat Book. Thank you so much, Dr. Netto, for having me here today. It's a pleasure. And uh, so clearly we're talking about the TCGA molecular classification. I'll share with our audience just briefly uh, some background and why you ha- did this study. Yeah, sure. So uh, it's been almost 10 years ago now. Uh, TCGA published their um, large uh, genomic characterization of endometrial cancer. And um, what was one of the major uh, findings of that study was the existence of this subgroup, uh, molecular subgroup of endometrial cancers that harbor poly mutations, um, which uh, are associated with a number of molecular features, but then um, carry this very excellent prognosis, even in the setting of high grade uh, histologically and uh, otherwise aggressive uh, microscopic features. Um, and so, you know, since that time, people have been really trying to figure out what is the best way to determine the molecular subgroup uh, of endometrial cancers, and in what context do we need to employ that, and how can it affect clinical management? So it's not only risk stratification based on the molecular subtype, but it's also going to affect management. So clearly, uh, we need some timely reporting and integration, and that brings us to your study, correct? Yes. So, what did you look at and, and uh, how do you actually, before that, let's talk about how do you actually, you get a case, what is the process at Stanford right now? 
Yeah, so, well, we've been doing um, upfront uh, mismatch repair protein immunohistochemistry and P53 immunohistochemistry on all endometrial cancers for many years, for quite some time. The poly um, status was, was a little more challenging because there is not an immunohistochemical stain. And so what happened was in um, 2018, Stanford developed a standalone um, snapshot-based assay to identify the majority of the pathogenic mutations that we know occur in endometrial cancer. And so at that point in time, we decided to just add it on as a molecular test in addition to the IHC panel that we were already uh, performing. Forming. Um, and so right now we've we've kind of switched because we stopped doing our universal testing on every single one and we can probably get back to why that is. Um, but in a nutshell, the first couple of years were supported by a grant and other funding to pay for the poly sequencing assay, which was the bigger cost compared to the immunohistochemical stains. And uh, just, just curious, how long uh, does it take to report a snapshot? The snapshot assay itself uh, just takes a couple days to do. The DNA extraction takes a day, and then the assay takes another day or two. Um, we, we do tend to batch it, so we run it once a week. Um, and so depending on when in the week you order it, uh, we'll determine kind of how many days it takes to get the results. So you can see where that can delay everything for a week if you were to wait on that. Wonderful. So let's uh, jump in then and uh, tell us a little bit of uh, details about the study, how many cases and, and how uh, just uh, study design and all that. Yeah, so the study design was to do prospective um, classification of endometrial cancers for all patients uh, being seen and treated at Stanford. And so this um, included the immunohistochemical profile that I already mentioned with MMR and P53, in addition to the poly um, sequencing. And this could be done either on the biopsy or at the time of hysterectomy. Um, and we did this over a period of approximately two years. It might have been just under two years, um, accumulating about 315 um, uh, cancers that we tested. And um, at the time of review, it was actually initially supposed to be done by the fellow who was uh, the first person to look at the slides. They placed the orders. Um, of course, once it gets to the faculty member, it's our job to make sure that all of the proper orders um, have been uh, in place. And we also learned that in the workflow, we had to have a mechanism to identify cases that might have been uh, missed um, on the first initial uh, sign out. Um, so we also had kind of like a search every month to identify any cases that did not have the full molecular classification performed. So the idea is, you know, you have your regular histopathology report, and then in an addendum, we report the full panel um, with a final molecular classification. And, and that's... Uh... I'm cheating because I read the paper. Uh, it's, uh, that's, that's your figure uh, one where you talk about these are from the majority of cases where you can resolve them morphologically, right? That's so right. you do that, and but then there are a minority of cases that you did it differently. Can you expand on that? Sure. So a minority of cases, particularly in these high-grade endometrial carcinomas, often with abnormal P53 um, expression, 
um, it can be really difficult to know for sure if you're looking at uh, a high-grade endometrioid carcinoma or a serous carcinoma, sometimes even clear cell. And the, the truth is you can have a variety of morphologic appearances that are just somewhat ambiguous, um, intermediate between individual or very specific classic histologic features. Um, and so these are the cases where it's actually really important, I think, or it will be important in the future to not misclassify these as serous carcinomas or P53 abnormal carcinomas. Those are exactly the patients you want to make sure are not harboring a poly mutation because you may be able to de-escalate uh, care. And that, of course, is you know still to be determined officially. But I think our thought was, let's just get on top of this testing al algorithm. Let's figure out the workflow so that when it needs to be done, we already have uh, kind of all the moving parts in place. So for those cases, you don't issue a report, you await all the molecular, and then in one shot you do a report that integrate morphology and molecular in the same That's right. Yep. All right. At least for the study. We'll come back at the end and see what modifications uh, you've introduced since. And uh, I wanted to uh, spend a little time about... Uh, 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 you have a nice diagram about how the four, you know, the four categories and using the immunos. And I noticed that uh, there are some uh, like uh, multiple classifiers under which one of them, each one of them, would you like to explain to, uh, to the listeners? So, for example, the polymute, clearly you do first the snapshot and uh, shot and you have... Uh, four or five alterations, right, that you can be, but then can you explain how these things work together and end and up with some multiple classifiers at the same time? Yeah, so the multiple classifiers are most, the most common uh, one that we come across is uh, a cancer that harbors both a poly mutation and a TP53 mutation or abnormal P53 expression. Um, when you look at the original TCGA, approximately 35% of poly mutated tumors also harbor a TP53 mutation. Um, and so this is certainly the most common multiple classifier that we come across. Um, another option would be the mismatch repair deficient uh, tumors that also have abnormal P53 expression. And then the least common is um, a tumor that would have a poly mutation and mismatch repair deficiency. Um, and it, our study was not designed to address kind of clinical behavior, but we do know from existing literature that the poly mutation in the setting of poly and P53 abnormalities, um, the poly is really the dominant feature. So um, the poly mutated cancers that also have abnormal P53 still have a very good prognosis similar to the other poly mutated tumors. The same is true for the mismatch repair deficient tumors um, with the P53 mutation. They tend to act very similarly to mismatch repair deficient P53 wild type tumors. Great. It's, it's, and that's the point you, you raised before. That's why you wait sometimes when the morphology is not, is not perfect because you want to put them in the right bin uh, of, of better behavior or better risk. Excellent. So uh, what uh, you already uh, was 
you know, was this just straightforward, easy, uh, or there were cases that gave you a hard time despite uh, going through this algorithm? And oh, there are always the cases that give you a hard time for sure. I mean, there's 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 the issue of subclonal uh, immunohistochemical patterns, and a little bit unclear uh, what to do with those and and what those mean. Um, that's one area that's always challenging. Um, another area is these ambiguous carcinomas. Even in the setting of knowing the molecular status, it can still be very hard to assign a specific, uh, you know, diagnostic category. And we do end up with tumors that are p53 abnormal, high-grade endometrial carcinomas with ambiguous morphology. Um, and it's, I think, it's, it's, in my opinion, I don't think it's necessarily the right thing to choose serous or endometrioid when it doesn't really fit into one of those categories. It may be that we'll learn something about those in the future um, that may put them into the proper context. And that's that's you're not just alluding to the fourth, you know, uh, category in itself that none, no specified mutation, right? No. You're not talking about that category. Yeah, that category is very interesting, but I'm not referring to, I'm referring to P53 abnormal tumors that by morphology are still very challenging to classify. Got it. And it's, it's probably a good point to remind, uh, to, to tell the uh, audience, especially those who don't do this every day, uh, how, what are the patterns of P53 alteration, not just overexpression, can you explain? That? Yeah, sure. So the most common pattern that we see is the overexpression pattern, um, but depending on the tumor type, maybe around 10%, maybe 15% of tumors can have truncating mutations where you end up with a complete absence of expression. Um, and so in those cases, it can be very challenging to recognize. And so you have to kind of keep in the back of your mind that this can happen. It's also really important to compare to internal uh, positive controls. I have also seen the null pattern um, be overcalled because there was um, just no staining at all. So you always have to make sure you have good internal control staining. Um, and then the least common pattern um, that I've just seen a hand Full of times, but it's been well reported in the literature, um, is the cytoplasmic um, uh, staining pattern where you get, it almost looks like a blush. You aren't sure if it's real. Um, and it's, it's an abnormal um, pattern, usually due to uh, a mutation in uh, a region of the gene that, uh, that tells it to go to the nucleus, right? So it can't get to the nucleus. So it's kind of stuck in the cytoplasm. I still find that pattern very challenging. And I often want molecular confirmation of the mutation um, when I see that histologic or immunohistochemical pattern. Excellent. So uh, let's let's then circle back uh, to what you said. It seems like you've, because it was funded by a grant, uh, you did these 310 cases, and, and that's a question we're always asked. Everybody would like to, to do a 500 gene panel on every incoming tumor, but clearly that's not a reality that we can sustain financially. So uh, how, how did you go around, and now what is the uh, truly daily practice now in Stanford, and uh, how do you find that uh, working? Yeah, so our you know our molecular lab was very happy when we ended this um, two-year period of doing every single cancer. Um, but I think you know in addition to the financial implications, it's also just a workload issue. Not everyone has a standalone poli assay. Um, another you know question is should we just be doing a panel? A sequencing panel that includes poli as one of many genes rather than doing a standalone poli test and you know maybe also an NGS um, assay at one of these bigger labs. 
Um, so I think you know there, there's a number of different ways to think about this. Uh, the NCCN uh, is what guides insurance um, reimbursements, uh, largely at least, and they are now uh, recommending uh, poly classification. So I think insurance reimbursements are going to become somewhat simpler. Now, whether that is a panel assay or a standalone assay remains to uh, to be seen. Um, but you know, the other idea or concept to keep in mind is that many endometrial cancers are low grade, low stage, and we may not need to know the poly status on those tumors. They already have an excellent prognosis. So you know, I think that there is still work to be done to determine which histologic stage and molecular uh, classifications need to be done on each case. I would argue that you know, from a, a practical standpoint of finances, we shouldn't be doing poly sequencing on stage 1A grade 1 endometrioid um, adenocarcinomas. Now from a workflow standpoint, that's much more challenging, right? It's easier to do the same thing on every cancer than to have a human <laughs> making a decision about which ones to order it on and which ones not to order it on. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. Right now uh, at Stanford, we are doing it, um, if we want to order it uh, as a diagnostic assay to help us with this ambiguous classification, uh, and then also by request. So when the clinicians request it, um, I think that's, that's the only other situation that we order it. When the Portec 4A results are published and they have kind of this prospective um, clinical trial that they can point to to guide and change management based on poly status, I think the number of tests that we will be doing will go way up. Um, but right now, they're kind of, they use it as a mediator for cases that are kind of on the fence. They don't know if they want to give chemo. They don't know if they want to radiate, for example. Um, but I think they don't really have a, much to stand on as far as making radical changes in the standard of care for therapy. Yeah, and just, just to make sure, you're not talking about uh, doing mismatch repair immunosequence. You're just referring to the poly standalone versus, you know, a part of a, a gene panel that you do not order that now by reflex on every case. You still just order it if the case is ambiguous and, and it's going to help you, or if the clinician, like you said, is going to make a difference for them in terms of management. Till this trial, results are published and then till it become, you know, a day-to-day -day procedure, correct? Yes, that's right. right. Yeah, we still do the MMR on all the cases. You know, as you know, there's reasons to do it other than assigning a, a molecular uh, classifier, so. Correct. And, and same for P53, right? That's right. Kid. Perfect. Well, uh, very clear. Uh, this is a, a great study and uh, I, I learned a lot as usual from all these podcasts and I, I thank you for uh, taking the time and uh, uh, for our audience. Uh, thank you for uh, listening and uh, following our podcast. Uh, we're thrilled uh, that uh, you are uh, fans so far. So please stay with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of Modern Pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.